0: to talk to you. Um, I Like I just told you before we started recording, I binge your content all the time. It's just so informative and you do such a great job. So welcome to the show. I love to start with some rapid fire questions. The first one is, what are your big three in astrology if you're an astrology person? And if you're not, do you have any personality tests you like?
1: Okay. So I, I do think I know my big three. I'm, I'm a Leo, Sun, Taurus moon Capricorn rising. Ooh. It's either Taurus moon Capricorn rising or the reverse. I might also be, it might not even be Taurus. Okay. <laughs> what is your hometown and where do you live now? Okay. So my hometown, well, where I was born and where I lived for about the first eight years of my life was Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia. And then I grew up in Sacramento. So kind of between Mongolia and Sacramento as one does. And But now to be honest with you, the Bay area probably feels like home because I've spent a lot of really sort of impactful years in my life here, and my mom's been here a while. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, Bay Area, I know you worked at Google. I work with Leslie mm-hmm. Baker, and so
0: she. I was like, do you know Dilma? And she was like, yes, I do. It's crazy. So the Bay Area.
1: Yeah, and also Sasha uh, Sasha Arianda texted me. She was like, oh my gosh, I saw that you guys were yeah. going to do a podcast together. Oh my God, I
0: love Sasha. Sasha's my work bestie. Like I, every day, she brightens my day every day. Then Mongolia is very interesting. I heard about this on a previous show that you were on, but I don't know if it's like public information on your TikTok that you spent so much of your life there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not. I don't feel like I've gone into my story a lot on TikTok. And lately, I've been feeling like, well, maybe I should tell people more about myself because I feel like they want to get to know me. But yeah, it's it's very different. Mongolia, Um, when I was growing up, there was a post-Soviet country. So it was a Soviet satellite. So it was kind of economically in a very distressed time, which is why there was such an exodus, I would say, to the States. And a lot of people moved abroad. And my mom was one of those people. She came to the Bay Area. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was formative in so many ways. And I think growing up in a society that had much lower living standards and then switching back and forth between Mongolia and Sacramento, the suburbs of Sacramento, California, kind of gave me this Feeling of dissonance around global inequality, honestly. And I I think that's a bit of a kind of a funny thing to be thinking about as a kid, but it really struck me that difference in in the living standards, which is why I ended up studying development studies, like international development at at Brown. So it really did shape me. Absolutely. I think, like,
0: I think I can't like put that to. An actual understanding myself in terms of countries but I did recognize that like inequality in my hometown of St. Louis has like some of the sharpest inequality like especially school-wise, economic-wise and you just it just you're like confused by it, but globally on a yeah. different scale, I think America is really shielded from the concept of like what's happening in other worlds or so another other worlds. See, look, like it's yeah. being subconsciously inga- in- ingrained, but in other countries as well. So I'd love to hear more about that later as well.
1: So then, and also, wait, can I? One thing about that really quickly, I, I'd i love to put a pin for later in the conversation about how those two, that contrast shaped you and your motivations, because I feel like that contrast made me really driven and ambitious because I saw so many sides of everything and it just made me want to be that bridge in a way. And I think that motivates me a lot.
0: Okay. What is your favorite celebrity brand like you that you
1: personally like? That's I love that you're distinguishing that. I love Rare Beauty, honestly. I do love Rare Beauty, and I think they've done a great job. And honestly, with makeup, I have a friend who's been in the beauty industry a long time. She was... Uh, an executive at Sephora. And she um, was telling me recently, you know, it's actually harder to launch a celebrity makeup brand because you have to deliver The products have to deliver instantly, whereas skincare, you can make a lot of claims and get away with it. And so I think Rare Beauty has done a really great job. It's just a good products. Even if you took the celebrity sort of name out of it, it, it really stands on its own. So.
0: Totally agree. And that like coming at the same time as a lot of other brands, like, and they have an interesting like differentiating point too. So I love that. Okay, favorite influencer yeah. brand then.
1: So I love Crave Beauty by Leah Yu. She's a skin influencer. She's a YouTuber mm-hmm. who talks about skin. I love Summer Fridays. There are a few others, but I, I think those two are, are my favorites. Totally, I'm a Summer
0: Fridays stan. Mariana is my favorite. Yeah. Like I've been obsessed with it since I since she launched the Jet Lag Mask. Like I bought it like first launch. Yeah. And so to be on their PR list is when I was like, okay, I've like made it as an influencer, like huge moment. Oh, that's that's great. Love her. Okay. What is your
1: most important self-care practice? I don't know that I'm that consistent about anything. I mean, lately I've been working out a lot. I've been working out every day. So I guess that is a form of self-care. And honestly, because also I've been caregiving for my mom, I think the working out is sort of like my excuse to get out of the house and just like- be out and and do something for myself which is really helpful because I've been busy there's that and then also this is more of like a principle rather than like a specific tactic or habit but I really believe in honoring your body's rhythms and working when you feel like working and resting when you feel like resting and I think for ambitious people you often feel like working but it's just important to be so attuned to yourself and I think that principle just keeps me feeling really inspired and creative and like my cup is full instead of like depleted and like I'm pushing myself past my limits because that's how I used to operate before and it wasn't working, so.
0: I feel like the way you said that resonated a lot with me. I think like the... I think it's, um, I've recently heard about this concept of like intuitive business. Um, I don't know if you've heard of holisticism. I love holisticism. They do great episodes on their podcast, The 12th House, about like intuitive business. But like, that's one thing that I didn't feel like I had permission to do. Like when I work, I work super hard and a lot comes out. And then when I rest, like I really need that. So I love the way you phrased that. And then what is the worst
1: business advice you have ever received? That's a good one. Worst business advice. I think there's a lot of bad advice out there. Honestly, I would say it's sort of like a meta answer. I think anytime somebody pretends to have the playbook for you. It, it's just, there are so many ways to do something. There's so many ways to be a creator. There are so many ways to start and scale a D2C brand. There's so many different ways to do everything. And I think people really want to have that silver bullet playbook. That is the thing that works. And it's kind of ironic because I'm in the business of sort of like breaking down playbooks and like telling people like, this is what you should do. But honestly, I really come back to the mantra that there's no one way to do anything.
0: I love that. I mean, it's, Certainly true, especially with entrepreneurship. So I'm glad to hear you say that. We're going to dive into questions now. And I we talked about this a little earlier, but the concept of growing up somewhere that was definitely economically suffering versus like an American rich cu- uh, country or area or city, or even like the suburbs of a city. What How did that impact your personal goal setting and like your ambition, like you mentioned? Because For me, it was certainly like a big part of why I am the way I am.
1: I would say similar for me. It's really shaped who I am and how I think about work and what motivates me. Because not only did I grow up in a developing country and also in the United States, but In the United States, we would basically be moving from like small apartment to small apartment. I've never lived in like a house when I was a kid and in the States. And I I never felt super deprived, but also even as a small child, you know, when you don't have a lot compared to the other families. And so I was conscious of that here. And then when I would go back to Mongolia, it was different. My family was a little bit more comfortable. And so I was just living all of these different contrasts, even embedded within one another. And I think what that did for me was, I have this theory that the most ambitious people, at least the ones that I know have, have had this paradoxical experience of having proximity to like affluence or power or whatever it is, but it was kind of just beyond their grasp. And I think that. That combination of the proximity, but also you don't fully feel like it is yours. I think that can create a lot of drive in people. And I'm sure there are other, you know, there are plenty of reasons people can be motivated, but at least for me, that was, that was the case. And it also comes from a place of, well, I feel so lucky to have I mean, what are the chances that I would be born after the Soviet collapse in Mongolia when everything was in shambles and my family was on food rations, and then I would end up um, working at Google? You know, going to Brown, going to an Ivy League school. Just my circles are so different. But I never. I always try to. I always have that perspective in the back of my mind of this wasn't sort of preordained. You know, I feel lucky. I feel privileged. This is. I've basically won the lottery ticket of life in society, and I feel a sense of responsibility to be that bridge to kind of keep that door open behind me. And I think that is why I do a lot of the things that I do. And so I think in a multitude of ways, it shaped me. And I think it also, you know, there's a bit of a healthy chip on your shoulder, I think you get from having those contrasting experiences. So
0: I resonate with a lot of that. I think like what you said of, of have it being right, but like outside of your grasp, you're not 100% there yet. Um, I felt that a lot going to Northwestern. I felt that a lot. I went to boarding school as well before that. And it's like, you're always a scholarship kid, but like you know it. And so what I also gained from that was like picking up this. I don't want to call it emotional intelligence because that's not what it is, but it's like this understanding of how other people are interacting with each other, especially those people who have that power and influence and then trying to replicate and build that. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs like sort of have to do that when they're building their brands. But was there a reason that entrepreneurship or like even like the girl boss movement became so
1: interesting to you? And do you think it was because of that? That's a good question. I think I've always been ambitious as a kid because of the factors I just mentioned. And also, I had a soft spot in my heart for this idea of empowering women, which now even is starting to sound like cliché and sort of like passé and and weird. I think like girl boss is used now so I, ironically and there are a lot of issues with the way it was conceived and how simplistic it was, but I do feel like I saw myself reflected in kind of language or or movements like that when I was younger, because I I wanted to help women in some way. And I think part of that is probably stemming from the fact that I grew up an only child raised by like a very young single mom who was an immigrant in the United States. And it's, you know, it's hard to be an immigrant here. It's really hard to be like a young woman who's a single mom here. And so I was seeing a lot of her struggles. And I think that just really deeply impacted me. And I, I think to this day like that's the emotional core of what drives me in a lot of ways is my mom and everything she's been through. And and so I think I am therefore always orbiting around these themes of of women and and sort of how to help them. And I mean also
0: it's fun, I think too, to be focused on women because women are just so much more interesting and cool and I mean I <laughs> deep in like the 2014 or when I, 2016, like when it was the quote girl boss movement, I think something I've loved from your content is that you're not completely writing off that time as being a problem for society. Can you tell us more about your thoughts on like the girl boss era of CEOs and female founded brands?
1: Yeah, I love this question because there's so much to unpack here. I generally feel like people collectively don't have a lot of nuance about things, right? Especially on the internet. And I think that's just human nature. It's sort of when you're part of a collective, you are there's a lot of simplifying of of big concepts. And I think that happened in two ways with the girl boss movement. Initially, there was this flocking to the concept of the girl boss as, you know, being like a harbinger of progress and being the antidote to a lot of sort of structural um you know sexism and gender inequality and and everybody was embracing it and so enthusiastic about it because it did strike a chord it resonated with a lot of people but then i think because of how swiftly that kind of movement came to the fore people started to realize that they were becoming jaded by some of its limitations right admittedly it was very limited it was it was really sort of upholding this white privileged female founder who quintessentially embodied by a lot of the brands that represent that D2C era. And I think people saw all the holes in that, but now I think there's this sort of backlash against it that has swung to the other side of the pendulum that I think also similarly lacks nuance. And I think the truth, like with all things is somewhere in between, right? We, we got something out of that because it did resonate. And instead of saying, well, that movement was terrible and useless and, and simplistic, we need to ask, well, why did it resonate? If if all those things are true, and they are true to an extent, why was it that we were so starved collectively for any semblance of feeling seen and feeling kind of represented as women who are ambitious professionals, that that movement was satiating that? And I think interrogating that is what we should be asking. And that's where I want to push the discourse, generally speaking. Totally. I mean, I think feeling ambitious is A weird
0: feeling to have as a woman because if you're too ambitious, then you are like you're too much for people, and they don't really want to listen to you. And it's like you're crazy. Like, and then if you're not ambitious at all, you're a lazy gold digger who doesn't deserve anything. So it's like, okay, where am I supposed to go? I've always felt like I was too ambitious, and that my ambition was like something people didn't like about me. And I haven't, and being able to balance that with What is the reason I'm so ambitious? And I mean, we take it back to what we were talking about earlier. It's because I didn't have a life that was calm and a life that was a quote like soft life, which is what the girls are saying on TikTok these days. I'm ambitious because Mm -hmm. I wanted to relax. And now Mm -hmm. that like once you have stability, I realize like, oh, I'm actually just like very ambitious as a person. On that front of being very ambitious, we haven't talked too much about your background, where did that take you early in life and in your early career and where are you now?
1: So I was I actually liked school a lot and I liked learning and I was always into, you know, being being a nerd basically. And and I did well in school and I got a full ride to Brown and I I really loved it there because it's so intellectually free you can kind of you know make up your own major you can make up your own class I mean it's not quite as sort of libertine as people make it out to be although maybe it is but it was a really great environment for somebody like me who just likes to have a lot of freedom to follow her intellectual curiosities. And so what I ended up doing was I studied international development, like I mentioned, which is a very interdisciplinary major there. And I also fell in love with startups and entrepreneurship because I think what I generally felt was I want to make some sort of an impact. I don't know how at the time, you know, I didn't really know what that looked like, but I knew I wanted to do something great. I wanted to make an impact. I was ambitious. And so I wanted to really kind of, somebody recently said you really want to, what was it? He said something like, "You want to make a name for yourself," and I thought that was kind of a funny way to put it, but it's also not untrue. And I and I've always felt that. And I and I remember looking around at Brown and thinking, "Well, my options, based on where my peers are going, are investment banking, which I didn't want to do, management consulting, which." I didn't really want to do, because uh, it's not really what it sounds like, and uh, and then I thought, okay, well, there's tech, right? There are people who are impatient to make a big impact, like me, do things and scale them fast, and and I like that, and all the nerds are there, and I like that too. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna go to the Bay, and I'm gonna apply to a bunch of tech companies, and and I applied to a bunch of startups, and I also got, I kind of applied to Google because they were recruiting at at our campus. And I, I, my first job out of college was an, an AdWords account strategist. So that's where I, you know, was working with the some of the folks that we just mentioned, Sasha and Leslie, and it was an amazing team. I mean, honestly, like you know, some of those people, so you know how great that the team and sort of like that particular part of the organization can be, as far as like how smart and sociable and friendly, but also ambitious and competent everybody is. It's it's really wonderful in terms of you know the people. Um, but I remember thinking, I. I really want to do something entrepreneurial and this just doesn't feel like it's going to get me there because the only way to progress here is to move laterally within the organization or move up the ladder um, and get promoted. And like that just seems like it's taking me even further away from entrepreneurship in a way. I know that for some people, the right path is you clock in your hours in big tech and then you kind of like, you know, make the leap, but I'm impatient and I don't like to do that. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to leave and I'm going to start. What I wanted to do was start a content commerce platform similar to like a violet gray or like a goop or something or an into the Gloss, where there's a lot of editorial content about beauty and wellness um, and different like brands, especially female-founded brands, and then you were also selling the products. And so I started to kind of work on something like that, and then I realized I actually need a lot of capital for this. I haven't saved up enough money for this, and I ended up just kind of wandering. My career was very meandering for a couple of years while I was doing... I had gotten a lot of experience as a marketer when I was in undergrad, too, because I interned at Red Antler, which is a branding agency for D2C companies, and I did a lot of content marketing. So I was doing a lot of that while I figured things out, but in 2017, I started um, my first business, which was a clean fragrance brand, again, trying to get at this idea of like, how do I curate brands that I believe in, but also do it through content commerce, bootstrapped it for a couple years, had like a crazy perfect storm of life in 2018, where like everything in your life professionally and personally blows up, uh, moved to LA to reset. And then Eventually started a community of women who are D2C and e-commerce founders because I was in that space and I wanted to connect with other women. All the groups I found online were full of e-commerce bros who loved Tai Lopez and just wanted to, you know, arbitrage Amazon FBA products so they could buy a Lamborghini. And I thought, that's not what I want to do. And I started my own community. So that started to become something because every time somebody would join, I was just so excited that they were joining my community. I would ask them out to coffee if they lived in LA or get them on the phone, ask them, what do you need? What resources are missing for you? And they would say, I just can't figure out, you know, supply chain or fundraising or whatever. And then I would just go and cold email or bring in the right instructors to teach free workshops. I did like dozens and dozens of these free workshops. I eventually did like over a hundred of them. And that started to become something. And then the women in my community were saying, why are you doing this work for free? You shouldn't start charging for this. And I was like, that's not a bad idea. So then I finally pivoted to that. That became MakeLine. So that is the business I've been running since 2019, kind of like masterclass for e-commerce or women in e-commerce is one way to put it. And that just was inadvertently my um, education in e-commerce, in D2C and consumer brands. And then, as you know, I started posting on TikTok last year because of all of that and accidentally became a TikToker. So here we are.
0: People need to hear that your career can make many pivots and that you could have, like you said, a perfect storm of life and still reset and be excited and happy about what you're doing after that. And I also really resonate with like the starting at Google, like you've made, you found like the big dream job or whatever. And then you're like, girl, like this is great, but I'm an impatient entrepreneur. And I feel the same way. I'm lucky now I had my first role was not like this, but now that I'm in YouTube, it's like I'm balancing both, but I also never stop. But I think that it's a cool story to hear how you went from A to point to Z. You were interested in content commerce for a long time. Did you ever see yourself being like the face of a brand like you are now? Or was it more like you were always going to be
1: behind the scenes? Here's the way I thought about it. It was a little both. The way I thought about my life, and this is me being very candid, is I want to start something that kind of scratches this edge of being interested even intellectually in content commerce, I just think I I love content. I just love content. And I've like, even when I was little, I used to save up all my money and spend it on like these glossy editorial magazines. and, And I just love content. So, I remember thinking, I want to start something there that feels meaningful to me, something where I can curate other brands and kind of like uplift them and ex- bring them more exposure, especially if they're doing things I believe in. And then, once I do that, eventually after that, I'll sell the company, I'll make a lot of money, and then I'll have a personal platform where people listen to the things that I say. And then it turns out I started posting on TikTok, and now people already listen to the things that I say. So, I got to like skip ahead <laughs> past a lot of the means to an end stuff which I hope is inspiration for people who have like a 20-year plan. It might not need to be a 20-year plan if you're just really clear on what it is that you really want. But that was that was the plan is initially, okay, I'm going to start this thing and maybe I'm not necessarily the face of it. I'm actually using it as a platform to uplift these other brands and other founders I believe in. Um, but eventually I want to I wanna get to the point where I get to sort of like spread interesting ideas that people listen to. And now I'm kind of doing both. You
0: are. And I think it's interesting because... I grew up a little bit – I was in college during girl boss season, right? So I felt like if I wanted to have a successful business, which I'm now realizing that I'm an influencer, that that's really what I'm interested in, is that I thought I had to be an influencer in order to do that. And so it was like, oh, you have to start, you have to build a platform, and then you can have products, and then you can have a successful business. And I still often feel like I'm stuck in that rabbit hole where it's like if I'm not huge, then nothing matters.
1: Yeah, I've, I've never thought about that. But you're right. And I do think that speaks to the era that we're in because you're a little younger than me. So it, I, I can see how that would be the conclusion looking looking at all these brands and influencers and thinking, oh, I first need to build my personal platform. Then I can start a brand that stands that, you know, is is independent from me. And I was in a, a slightly earlier time. So I kind of felt like the opposite. Yeah, it's
0: crazy. Yeah. Like, I feel like I because my biggest inspo, like I said before, it was like Summer Fridays. And I was like, if I want to do that, and that specifically, like not a little like Alexis Barber merch line, like a summer, like a company that could be worth millions and sell it, like you said, so that I can have a bunch of money yeah. and then people will listen to me. Like I would have to be, I have like millions of followers, but I have to always remind myself that there are small brands that are meaningful and that not everyone who starts a business is An influencer. And so that's what I wanted to talk to you about next is like starting your business from scratch. I know that you um, didn't continue with your first business to clean perfume brand. But I'd love to hear like, what did you learn from that? What advice can you give to people who are
1: starting product based businesses based on what you learned? So margins matter. Gross margins matter is the biggest thing that I want to tell people (laughs) because we just didn't have the gross margins we needed to be able to scale the brand. These days, if you want to have any chance of scaling a consumer product brand, you need upwards of 70% gross margins, ideally. And we had probably like 40, which is not like that. You can't do much with that. Plus I didn't have a lot of upfront budget to experiment with different customer acquisition channels. And so I don't want to say doomed from the start, but we had a lot stacked against us. Um, It was me. And then I had reached out after I started working on the idea. I had Googled at the time people were, blogs were still a thing. So I was looking for somebody who was sort of like a content creator or a blogger in the natural perfume space. And I found one person and she had relationships with all the brands that I wanted to get on board who were ignoring my emails. So I got her on the phone and 15 minutes into me asking for some advice. She said, I love this idea. I want to be part of it. Give me some equity and we'll get it off the ground together. But the agreement was always, she would sort of help launch it. And then afterwards she kind of stepped back. She had a lot going on as like a mom and a part-time nurse and content writer. So it's mostly me, but, but yeah, I, I would say the main lessons are gross margins are important. You want to have, you know, more than 70% ideally. And then you want to make sure that it's a product that, the the conversion cycle is not too laborious. I mean, with some products, it's just going to be hard, especially if it's a really expensive product or a product that requires a lot of education. But with perfume, you really have to sample a lot of things in order to commit to buying a full-size bottle, especially if it's from a brand you've never heard of, especially if it's kind of pricey, which our products were. Um, They were very luxurious, but also pricey per milliliter. You really need to have a realistic understanding of what is the actual like customer journey look like with this kind of a product? Like realistically, what are going to be the challenges? Like how easy is, is it going to be to convert people and actually make that sale that generates profit instead of, you know, selling a bunch of loss leaders, like in our case with the sample packs. So just getting into the nitty gritty, but like you just need to have, and sometimes there's no way to learn these things without actually just doing it. Right. But ideally try to just talk to people in the industry as much as you can consume content, consume podcasts, talk to other founders, talk to other founders who sell products in a similar category and ask them about what they would um, say are the pros and cons of that specific category. Because in e-commerce it's so category specific, I would just have, I, you know, for example, if you're launching any kind of a CPG or food brand, then you need to know sort of like, you know, how the storage works with that, right? If it's a perishable, like all like testing and, and, and all of that. So there's just, a lot you need to learn that sometimes I think people are tempted to rush in terms of the process of that, but it's good to just know what you're getting into. And then the other thing is be mindful about picking the right co-founder. I, I partnered with somebody who's really helpful, but I don't think we had really set clear expectations from the beginning on a lot of things and how we were going to divvy up responsibilities. And I think that created some tension. And I think, you know, people, it's funny because in the consumer brand world, people don't often talk about the importance of a co-founder, but in tech, right, with tech startups, people are always talking about co-founders. They're co-founder dating, they're looking for co-founders. Like there's so much content and sort of acknowledgement of the importance of that. But I would say like, if you're really, let's go back to the Summer Fridays example. I think it's not insignificant that they are two women who are co-founders. Like I think a big part of the success of that brand is because two women who have been cutting their teeth as influencers for a really long time, building goodwill in the industry, started something that has a great brand concept at the core of it, and they are two co-founders who are both willing to put in like 100%, right? Like that is gonna take something really, really far. That's great. But then if you have a bad co-founder relationship, that's worse than being solo. So you just have to be mindful of who you're getting in bed with, basically. Exactly. I think a lot of people, like you said, in
0: tech are super into like you've gotta have the right co-founder, blah, 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 But in D2C, it's not as prevalent. But I'm curious your thoughts on VC, on when to raise, when not to, and if you need a co-founder for that. Cause VC has always been so interesting to me, but I would like
1: to own all of my company. Yeah, so much to say here. Okay, first of all, um, just back to the Summer Fridays thing. They did Bootstrap in the beginning and then they brought on, they were building relationships with Prelude growth partners. Prelude is invested in a bunch of other consumer brands that are kind of, you know, pretty prominent. So I would say Prelude is not so much like tech, they're not tech feces, but they're, Industry experts. And that's what I would recommend to a lot of brands. There are not that many brands that I would say this might be controversial, but I would say there aren't that many. There aren't enough success stories in D2C where a D2C company has raised capital from tech focused VCs because tech VCs don't know what they're doing when it comes to D2C. You need real thought partners if you're going to bring on investors, especially because there's a certain kind of for DTC, whether in beauty or home goods or whatever, there's a certain kind of playbook, certain relationships you need to have, certain intros you need to the right retail partners, et cetera. And if you bring in somebody like Prelude Growth Partners, for example, or let's say um, Imaginary Ventures, or um, there are a few others, you know, uh, True Beauty Ventures, those people are industry people. They can really help you get further. They can unlock a lot of opportunity for you in a way that a, a tech VC can't. So even if you could raise from tech VCs, I would Caution against it. Plus, they don't always have the right expectations because they're going to want you to grow at a pace that's similar to a software, a SaaS company. Uh, Not always, the sophisticated ones know, but the incentives that they have and the obligations that they have to their investors, to their LPs, kind of makes it so that they have to have all of their investments scale super quickly in a way that's not always tenable for for D2C, for anything product, physical product based. So it's just important to understand. Like, I I still think it's okay for people to raise, but if I had to give sort of like, there are so many caveats to this, but the quick and dirty of it is if you want to rate, it's better to gain traction first while you're bootstrapping, however, you need to do it. If you need to just save up a bunch of money and then do it, or if you need to become an influencer, whatever it is, build traction or while you're bootstrapping first so that you can, in the meantime, build relationships with the right investors who understand your industry and then when the time comes, you have more leverage and you have more information on those investors to be able to take on that capital. And you have more leverage. Therefore, you're going to maintain presumably more equity because you're going to be able to negotiate better terms. People need to think about all of these things. And then also be mindful of the macro climate. Are you raising? Ideally, somebody's not raising their first round without a lot of traction this year. It's probably going to be very difficult. And even if you do, the terms are not going to be good, right? So so thinking about what's the macro climate like? Are investors pulling back? Are they deploying capital? What's going on and what's going on in my vertical as far as you know, venture capital? So, understanding all of that. And then, yeah, just partnering with the right people who understand your industry can open doors and have the right expectations because you really want to bring in the right thought partners in addition to just capital. You don't want just dumb money. You want people who can really move the needle for you. So, those are all the things I would say, but definitely try to bootstrap in the beginning if you can, however you can. Totally agree with you there. And, like, I think that's an important,
0: like, just reminder. I have a friend who had a company uh, and she was in, like, a great tech accelerator. And then, heard from a bunch of people who had like had successful exits about the culture of VC and how they were being pressured like to spend so much money just so that they could get to 100 million in revenue and be a unicorn and like that pressure doesn't always do well for you as a person but more so for your business i mean like if you have a real mission which businesses sort of need to survive you can't always do that when like you just have your num- your mind set on that 100 million dollar like goal so and especially right now i'm so curious how
1: things will turn out um in the vc landscape i personally believe that for every company and for every product line there is a sort of like a natural pace of growth that makes sense that is ideal and a natural ultimate scale that you need to reach it's not to say like you know brands are kind of limited and and that doesn't need to limit your thinking but if you are casper you can't try to be slack You, you just can't, there's not the market for that. Right. And you can't try to grow at the scale of the, the, some like crypto web three startup that's raised a bunch of money. Like if you try to do that, you will break things in a way that will undermine the foundations of your company, both in terms of how your management of your people, right? Like what kind of guardrails you have so that you're not making kind of like mistakes around regulatory things. Like all kinds of things can go wrong when you're trying, when you're trying to grow at all costs at the fastest speed possible. And I think there's a lot of beauty in, in really taking the time you need to set up the right foundations for a consumer brand. Because even when you think about like Byrito, just got acquired for a billion dollars, but they've been doing this for a really long time. They didn't just start in 2016, raise a bunch of venture capital and exit for a billion dollars. They've been establishing the foundation of their brand for such a long time. That needs to be the lesson for a lot of people looking to get into this space. Totally. And I think that lesson also applies
0: across whether you are trying to be an influencer or whether you're trying to be a brand owner or whether you're just trying to succeed in your own corporate career. I feel like the... Mm -hmm concept that things take time has really been lost like in my generation specifically I mean like the TikTok it's like you can blow up overnight and that's so beautiful but it's not always but like there's also a longevity that people want that takes a lot of time as well. So I know you did, you blew up on TikTok quickly, but it's not like you've been out here. Like you just picked up an interest in this. Like you have experience. You had built a community on your own before you'd built a business on your own before. And I know you talk a lot about doing like challenges and the challenges are how you started your TikTok career. Can you talk about where that came from and like what challenges do for you mentally and what are some
1: other ones you've done? I love talking about this. It's one of my favorite new topics. So I started doing, okay, where I got the ideas, a few people, two people, I think in 2016, I was dating somebody who was doing this like hundred eight hundred day pull up challenge. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I'm, I'm not going to do that, but good for you. And, but I was like, that's cool that you're doing that too, for a hundred days. And then I also saw there's this woman named El Luna who used to work in big tech. And now she's an artist, like a visual artist. And she regularly did these 100 day challenges where people would paint every day and post it on Instagram or something along those lines, something very creative. So I just kind of like had the seed of this idea planted where I was like, that's cool to commit to something for 100 days, because then it becomes about the practice and the showing up and the commitment rather than the output. And so I liked that. And then I remember always wanting to, I, like I said, I I've always wanted some sort of a platform to be able to like disseminate interesting ideas. And I remember thinking, well, to do that, I have to actually start creating content. It's not going to magically appear. And so I, um, in 20 late 2020, I decided to just post on YouTube for a hundred days in a row. Um, not really trying to like get views or anything, but just really at the time, I was so afraid of putting myself out there online that I was like, I need to get over this fear. And what better way than just go for it? Just put myself out there. And I did that to the point where I was, I got hospitalized because I got a kidney infection and it was insane. And I, they thought I had Well, I thought I had COVID and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, but I was determined not to give up my streak. So I kept posting and I switched to IGTV because, you know, when you're in the hospital dying of sepsis, basically, um, it's really hard to post to YouTube. So so I posted on IGTV because I was determined not to give up my streak and it was kind of insane, but but i completed that 100 days and afterwards i felt so free of this fear of what are people going to think of me online because after you post a picture of yourself in a hospital gown dying of sepsis to the internet for all your friends to see like honestly you have become officially shameless so i was like all right now i can post whatever i want i feel liberated and i remember back in last september One of my roommates at the time when I was living in LA was posting on TikTok and gaining some traction. So I thought that's, that looks fun. I want to do that. I love marketing. I love different platforms. So I want to try out this TikTok thing. And by week three, as soon as I started talking about businesses, specifically the Kardashians businesses, (laughs) I started to take off and, and then it just became this crazy accelerated thing. And, and it's just, I mean, now I'm basically a full-time creator now and it's changed my life. And I've met people that I used to admire and follow for years and years. And it's just been insane what, you know, how much TikTok can do. And I also think what I've learned is it's not even about, I don't have that many followers. I have 72,000, but it's about the quality of your followers and how engaged they are with you. So it's just been really, really awesome to make this whole pivot. But yeah, it all started with a hundred days. Wow, I love that.
0: I think that that's just a good way because you said before, like, it's not like, you wanted to be a creator in the first place. Like it's that you had a fear and you conquered it through a challenge. So I'm going to apply that to my own life. But I also think I like. it's that idea of quality followers because I know 72,000 is a lot, first of all. Like let's let's just put that out there. But the second part is I've <laughs> seen the opportunities you've built from your platform of just creating super quality content for a super specific Area And that has inspired me to think more consciously about what content I create because, and not to think so much about the numbers because numbers can be really good, but like a thousand true fans, you know, like the people who really care about you are what matters. And like, I feel like this podcast even like it's not the huge, biggest podcast on earth, but like the people who love it, really love it. And that means a lot. So yeah. I love that the the advice to glean from both of those. So if you are going to do a challenge, basically, if people are listening, if, you were, if they were going to do a challenge, how would you recommend they prepare for whether it's personal or content?
1: Yeah, so I would pick a challenge that scares you a little bit because that's good. We like growth. And I would ideally tell your friends about it because that's the thing, you know, on those days when I really don't feel like Back when I was posting TikToks, on the days I didn't feel like posting a TikTok, which there were many, and now I'm doing a workout challenge. On the days where I don't feel like working out, it's really sheer ego that keeps me going. Cause I'm like, I can't lose. I can't break my streak now. And that kind of accountability, look, it's not what we wanna always lean back lean on, but like it really helps. So I would say declare it to your friends, post about it, have an accountability buddy, or like post about it every day on Instagram stories like I do, and just keep going. And remember that it's not about perfecting it. It's not about Putting out the perfect thing if you're creating content or creating art or creating music or whatever. It's just about showing up every day and afterwards. The biggest thing that you gain is you feel so proud of yourself and so confident in your ability to commit to something that is priceless. It's not even about, you know, what the challenge was about. I love that. And it
0: is helpful because I think we all feel a lot of pressure to create the best quality thing um, when we need to flex that consistency muscle, because even when you have a bunch of quality content, if you're not posting it consistently, it doesn't really matter. So I have one mm-hmm. more question for you in the realm of business, which is... You mentioned a lot that brands or consumer products, et cetera, need communities. They need people who are really invested in a concept rather than like the specific product. How does one create community from scratch? Obviously, you've done this before. So I love your thoughts, like creating community from scratch with the intention of
1: either being a creator or selling a product. So um, the way I did it and... These days, people might use different platforms to do the same thing, but the principles hold. The way I did it is I created a lot of valuable content. I created ways for people to connect with each other, whether I was just getting to know each and every member and then connecting them to each other in the early days, or organizing meetups in LA or San Francisco or New York, create ways for people to meet each other and create value-add content that brings people together around a certain theme or topic. Because in order for anybody to join your community, we're all busy. We all have busy lives. We all are Have a lot of stuff to consume. So you need to stand out by moving the needle for them in some way. And good quality content can do that. And also helping them meet other like-minded people can do that. So if you can do that, whether you're using Geneva, I actually am obsessed with Geneva or you know, Slack or Discord or whatever, have that be sort of like the core of the value that you're adding so that you're making it easier for people to join instead of just trying to say, Hey, we're a community for wellness. Okay. Why would I join yours? Right. There are 5 million other wellness communities. And so is it a community like a wellness community for a specific kind of person? Are you going to offer like webinars or workshops or guest speakers or, or AMAs or what are you offering that nobody else is? So doing that and then, and then just really putting in the work to get to know people, especially in the beginning, it actually takes a lot of elbow grease to get a community, to feel like a real community, a community is not just a group of people you slap together into a room on the internet it's people who feel connected to each other and in order for them to feel connected somebody has to give a shit and really just um actually put in that work into getting to know people and then having them know each other and so when you are willing to do that, it's the do things that don't scale model, right? Like you're building relationships, relationships take time, but at some point it's going to hit a critical mass where the community starts to perpetuate itself. People will bring in other people. Yeah. They're going to refer their friends. They're going to say good things about you. They're going to start to self-moderate or like moderate other members when they're you know not abiding by the guidelines. So you want to create that goodwill in the beginning and that takes a little work, but it's worth it. And then when it comes to, well, how do I even get people into my Geneva community or Discord in the first place? These days, it's creating content. Ideally, I would say post on Instagram or TikTok or, you know, TikTok or Reels, probably. Or you can find somebody and partner with somebody who already has an audience. But you know, building an audience—that's just something you have to like hustle to figure mm-hmm. out. And then you cultivate your community and have it differentiated and really give a shit. So.
0: Absolutely, I like that a lot. I think the do things that don't scale. When I heard that, it really resonated with me um, when I first heard about it from you. Mm-hmm. Because, or I don't even know if it was from you. I don't know if it was from someone in business, but like, it is a really mm-hmm crucial thing to think about is like you don't need to operate like a major corporation on day one. You've got to build. I have had such a great conversation with you. Um, I, I love it. Um, I like to end my shows by asking everyone the same question, which is finish the following sentence with something that you want younger people or other people to know. You are too smart for
1: living your life according to what other people think or want of you.
0: Agreed, 100%. I'm so glad that you came on. Thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge and also just doing it so without like expectation. It's so helpful for all of us who are following you on TikTok. Um, where can everyone find you and where can everyone join your community if they'd like to?
1: Yeah, so if they go to makelane.com is where they will find a link to join the community and then I am on TikTok. I am at I am dolma that's my handle on tiktok which is where I mainly create content and then instagram which is where I post mostly about peanut butter and workouts and then I love your I mean the 100 day challenge
0: of you working out is actually inspiring me so I love that Thank you so much for listening to Too Smart for This. I am so grateful that you took the time out of your day to take a listen to these conversations. If you're looking for more content, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Too Collective. And don't forget to follow me, your host, Alexis Barber, on the Gram TikTok as well. Don't forget, you can also watch our solo episodes on YouTube. So be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Alexis Barber. And we do a weekly giveaway of PR products or Amazon gift cards cards to girls who leave great reviews down below. So please make sure to leave your reviews and follow us on Instagram to be notified in case you win. And with that, do not forget that you are too smart to not love yourself and see you in the next episode.